This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. What are those national critical functions that allow us as a society to be secure and prosperous and, and live in the free world? Hi, and welcome to the Ian Weekly Show, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. This week, we have Sean Griffin from Disaster Intelligence with us. Sean Griffin is a Navy veteran and a president and CSO of Disaster Intelligence Incorporated. Well, we'll let Sean tell his story. Speaking of disaster intelligence, have you registered for the EM Weekly webinar this March 28th? The topic is Emerging Technologies and Emergency Management. We have all seen the newest and greatest tech out there, but do you know what is good, bad, or indifferent? So we have invited Desiree Mattel Anderson, the CEO of Global Disaster Innovation Group, futurist Mary Jo Flynn from Sacramento County Emergency Management, and Greg Brunel of One Concern. I hope to see you there. You still have time to get your discounted registration for the EMLC. The early bird registration of $100 off ends on February 28th. If you're a student, take advantage of your $200 discount, and this is a great opportunity to meet leaders in the emergency management community. Stop by the EM Weekly booth and say hi. Before we get into the interview, I want to take time to thank Brock Long for his service to the United States and to the profession of emergency management. Your vision and leadership will be missed. Jeff Bayard, I want to let you know that we support you and good luck in the confirmation process. From a corpsman to a Marine, Semper Fi. Now on to the interview. Sean, welcome to E Weekly, and how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Todd, for having me. Sean, tell me, tell me a little bit about your background and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So, thanks for the question. I I started my career in the United States Navy uh, in nuclear power, actually, of all things. Um, uh, from there, I segued into occupational safety and health. Um, so, as you'll figure out, my career sort of zigzags, but there's some continuity. Uh, from there, I uh, left the, the Navy, um, uh, came up active duty, and joined the Federal Service as a civilian uh, at the National Institutes of Health, um, also in occupational safety. And then that's where I transitioned my career into emergency management. I worked in the uh, emergency management office at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, and then transitioned my career um, from there. So that's I've been in emergency management since, and I'll continue to do so for the rest of my life. I'm very passionate about this because ultimately people are at the center of it, uh, and it's about taking care of, of your neighbors. Uh, from, from NIH, I went to Defense Logistics Agency, also in emergency management, then the U.S. Department of State, U.S. Department of Energy, also emergency management, and then I was detailed uh, to the White House, uh, the National Security Council. I was the director for incident management integration policy. And then I went back to the Department of Energy once my detail was over and then uh, left DOE, decided to uh, uh, start uh, a few companies. Uh, the one that is at the center of my attention and my focus is uh, disaster intelligence. And I'm the president and chief strategy officer 
um, at DI. So when you talk about disaster intelligence, what, what exactly is that? Our focus at disaster intelligence is both big data and thick data. Um, there's the buzz term big data that a lot of folks like to, uh, or a lot of people like to focus on. And that's really talking about the qualitative, or excuse me, the quantitative analysis numbers. Uh, with the advancement of smart cities and the internet of things, and humans as a sensor, right? Everybody has a cell phone, a smartphone, or many people do, high penetration in the United States and across the world. We have now all become remote sensors. And we are at, I think, a interesting conversation in the world on what do we do with that data? And in our opinion, um, there are ways that we can benefit the public in leveraging uh, access to, to these data sets while recognizing privacy um, and doing things like de-identifying data on ingest into um, large parallel com uh, computation models into uh, parallel uh, 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 computers. Uh, that um, we can we can leverage this data data for public benefit, uh, but there has to be uh, uh, a strong consensus on how we do that regulation uh, that supports it and policy um, at, at all levels of government, internationally, federal, U.S., uh, state, local, tribal, territorial. Uh, that there is agreement of how we manage this data um, and 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 leverage it for public benefit. So, for example. Uh, we're working with the MIT uh, Lincoln Laboratory, which is a Department of Defense uh, federally funded research and development uh, uh, laboratory. And uh, they uh, uh, did something really simple. Well, it seems very simple. Uh, there's math and some horsepower behind it, but basically pinging the internet of things um, and seeing if the devices are on or off. And that provides a prediction or real time um, uh, model of, of power outages. So as the devices go off, uh, the heat map uh, goes from green to red, you know, or to orange at some uh, percentage of, of uh, customer outage. And interestingly, it's also been uh, used for insights or evacuation, uh, uh, evacuation or prediction of evacuation. So for example, in Hurricane Irma, uh, before the onset of tropical force winds uh, in Florida, you start to see all this red on the model um, because folks were evacuating from the Keys and from the southern portions of the state. Uh, and then, of course, as the hurricane uh, made landfall and, and passed and traversed over the state, um, um, Irma basically just you know ran up the middle of it. Uh, you start to see this you know, large clusters of red. And uh, MIT had done the analysis with the actual data uh, that um, the power outage data that both the utilities themselves were reporting to Florida uh, State EOC, as well as the Department of Energy. Um, and the, the numbers are, are very uh, tightly correlated. So um, the model has been proven. They, they tested this in, in Hurricane Matthew. And so we're underway um, seeking the tech transfer to move uh, that model, which is not an operational code, um, over to our platform so that we can 
uh, leverage that great work and continue to provide that to the public, which ultimately we would like to do for free. And if we can cross-correlate, uh, say, a power outage uh, model um, to include what Argonne National Lab is doing from their power prediction model and cross-correlate that with other key data sets that are useful for making decisions, for example, um, if we had insight to at-risk populations, vulnerable populations, say, um, um, uh, older populations who may be uh, dependent on medically or electrically dependent medical devices like ventilators and uh, dialysis machines, uh, we, may, we may be able to target our response more effectively uh, to, uh, to assist those uh, in need and do it in real time. And so uh, the other thing we disaster intelligence we're doing is we have architected our backend optimized for the, the graphics processor unit through our partnership with NVIDIA, uh, who, who makes the, the uh, GPU. And so in order to uh, take advantage of these big data, uh, uh, large data ingest applications, uh, you need the, uh, the parallel processing compute uh, uh, to match it. So you see this, uh, you know, with autonomous vehicles and other uh, smart city applications, the future of the grid, uh, you name it. Uh, GPUs uh, are, are changing the game as far as being able to create these types of useful insights to big data uh, in real time. And we're talking real time as in hundreds of milliseconds, and we're talking hundreds of billions of, 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 of records uh, uh, data sets to be able to ingest that simultaneously and interact with that temporally in real time. So it's a very exciting time, I believe. Um, and we're just getting to the to the beginnings. The technology is there, but we're getting to the beginnings of integrating this uh, into the emergency management homeland security uh, enterprise. And it's just a start. So I'm really looking forward to collaborating with anybody um, who's interested uh, to uh, to leverage these technologies to provide for public benefit and ultimately save lives and re reduce risk to our communities. So I have three questions based upon that. So um, one is is that the technology that you're working on right now, and a little while ago I interviewed um, a couple of people that use AI for different things. I had a, a professor um, that created an AI for flooding and I talked to a company that does um, AI called One Concern um, for mapping uh, type stuff. Um, could your technology integrate with, with, with theirs? And then the second question on that is, how does, your, how does the technology that you're working on now also help out with emergency management, with the um, um, power, safety power shutoffs that, that we're doing here in California? So those are interesting questions. So the first question, um, artificial intelligence and and what we can do. So we, due to our partnership with NVIDIA and how our backend is, has been architected, um, we are optimized for artificial intelligence as well as deep learning applications. Um, that is not the center of our focus. It's certainly on our horizon from a strategy perspective. But right now, what, what our main focus on is, number one, uh, getting all the key data sets into our system, um, either on our system or through some subscription uh, capability like API, uh, so that we have all the necessary data to do um, uh, to to drive uh, the analytics that we that we need to make decisions. Um, so that's really our, our primary focus uh, now. 
And we've been collaborating not just with MIT, but with, uh, for example, uh, uh, University of North Carolina down in Chapel Hill, where they have the ADSERC model. Um, you know, the problem with the ADSERC model is it's, it's a great model, but it's very slow. And so the rendering time, um, you know, can be three hours. Well, as we know with Hurricane Michael, for example, uh, uh, it, it, uh, it, it moved. It was a very dynamic uh, uh, storm. And so because it's so uh, violent and fast, uh, you need to have the models perform at much faster uh, speeds uh, than three hours. So by the time you, you develop or render the model, it's effectively useless because your your data is out, you know, is old, and uh, and and the results are 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 effectively useless. So, um, it's something that DHS and the new agency, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, which has the National Risk Management Center, which is an amalgamation of uh, what used to be OCIA, the Office of Cyber and Infrastructure Analysis, where they do a lot of their modeling work, and and they've identified that. Some of these models, which they're useful, um, as somebody said, all all mo models are wrong. Some models are useful, um, and it's really about, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's insightful. Um, is that is that um, you know a lot of these require they're computationally intensive. They require a lot of math, which means uh, uh, you you have to have the, the the parallel processing power to match. The models as well as the, the massive amounts of data that need to be pushed through the pipe. So that's where we um, we have a tremendous value to this to this space is that you know rather than us trying to build new models or build new um, uh, uh, algorithms, if there's already existing models that that have been well tested, that are evidence based, well researched, you know, nested in academia, but they don't have the technology partner to optimize their models um, uh, or the math to, to be fast enough or performant enough to actually provide the useful insights that are timely um, and where you can make decisions. So, um, so you know, we, we're more than happy to work with the one concerns of the world, with the GSPs of the world, with any of the companies who are active in this space. We've, we've just started a partnership with a company called FloodMap out of, out of um, Australia. We are, uh, we are of the opinion as a company, as our ethos, that we are collaborative uh, because we have a shared interest in, in the risk because it's, it's a civilization risk. It was a risk to our communities. And so uh, we, uh, we need to be working together to solve these problems rather than hyper-competitive, in my view. Um, now, as far as the, the uh, wildfires at West and um, the interesting discussion that the utility commission is is grappling with do you do you shut off the power in advance to uh, essentially remove a source of ignition uh to prevent the fires well i would argue that uh, that's control-based risk management which can be helpful we really need the root cause risk management which i would argue is the fuel um the, you know the problem with the trees uh, versus the, the the power but however um, that being said, um, if we decide to go in, in, in that direction where we want to um, uh, proactively, as a control measure, uh, 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 de-energize and, and shut off parts of the grid to uh, prevent uh, that as a source of ignition, uh, I think we have to do it with, with careful 
and thoughtful analysis that the, again, risk uh, that the benefits outweigh the costs of the, that decision. Um, and so, for example, uh, uh, what, what we can do or what, we've, what we would like to do um, is use uh, orbital platforms, um, specifically with our, our tech partner in Digital Globe, in uh, identifying change detection. And so that we can rapidly, uh, as well as uh, integrating other uh, sophisticated weather models um, and advanced weather modeling, um, to be ahead of the curve and anticipate um, when, uh, when things shift uh, rapidly and you know the wind blows one way and then it goes the other way um, to inform the power companies that hey you need to shut the power off and and give a, a higher confidence a higher um, uh, a degree of certainty of, of that that's the right decision and and we can articulate uh, the the, uh, the trade-off there so my my thinking is I think it's a useful conversation to have um, with the utility commission um, but my concern is if we don't give it enough careful thought, uh, that we may be trying to, you know, use that one control as, as a stopgap, which could be a false sense, false sense of reality. But uh, we are certainly willing to engage in the conversation. And if we can be helpful, we would, we would love to do that. So before we started the, the recording, uh, we are talking about uh, disaster resilience and, and what that means and kind of your take on it. And I think that all everything we're talking about right now kind of lays into that uh, um, that overlay of, of what disaster resilience is. What does disaster resilience mean to you, and how can your company help with that mission? Sure, thanks. Yeah, it, I mean, resilience is a is a sticky term that um, you know we uh, you know communities have struggled with. You know, for example, in the power industry, uh, the focus of uh, the power industry, um, uh, not just since the 2003 blackout and the establishment of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, um, which the key word there is reliability. So in the power community, they feel that if they operate reliably and efficiently, that um, resilience is, is inherently uh, integrated there. Well, that's not necessarily as true. Reliable power is not necessarily secure power you know, whether it's from a cybersecurity perspective or a physical security perspective, there are clear vulnerabilities there um, where you have single points of failure and you could take down a number of large power transformers and, and cause a tremendous amount of uh, uh, difficulty in that restoration mission because large power transformers, A, uh, they are in low quantity. So there's a supply chain risk there. Um, even if they are available, they're huge. And so you need you know a seven lane highway to move these things, um, right. and and they're slow. So when we talk about reliable power, we can't just use that as an end to a means. We have to look at the resilience. And so it's a it's a systems view, root cause understanding what are the the most critical functions. And I think DHS is um, is thinking in the right way this in this perspective where. Folks like Bob Kalaski and Chris Krebs and others, Bob Hansen and, and, and that, that whole team at the CISA shop, is they're trying to identify what are, the, what are those national critical functions um, that, uh, uh, that, that allow us as a society to be secure and prosperous and, and, and live in the free world. You know, so generating power, 
You know, that's a very high level thing. Well, what does that mean? We need to unpack it, understand all those various touch points um, from a risk perspective. Again, if we lose a high powered transformer, a large powered transformer um, in, in multiple ways where we have kinetic attacks against them and it takes six months to a year to manufacture it and it's also huge, you got to move it. Uh, we have to understand how the system uh, uh, interacts and then make risk decisions to, to bring down, uh, 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 to mitigate against those, those threats. And as a result, um, we, we can create a more resilient community because the community is able to survive and it is able to work through those shocks to the system while we rapidly uh, or accelerate um, uh, response time. So what we're interested in in our company is, is two things. Number one, we want to be able to leverage this large computational capability and uh, big data capability to, uh, to run models uh, very fast in, in an iterative way uh, where we're not waiting weeks or a month to wait for the, wait for the result set. <coughs> when you're at, a, at the macro level, at a national level, and you want to understand you know, risk to a, a grid interconnect. That's a huge machine. Um, and there's a lot of data points. Um, so there's a couple of assumptions going into that. In order for us to be helpful, well, we need access to the data. If we don't have access to the data, we, it's effectively useless. Um, and we won't, we won't understand how that system interacts. So, um, and then on the response side, getting it in real time. Again, another data limitation to have uh, a real time access to certain key data sets, like, say, for example, um, uh, uh, river gauges. Uh, you know, some of these are quote public data sets. And though they, even though they're quote public data sets, me as now a private citizen, I don't have access to them. And if, and if I do have access to them, the data is so disorganized that I have to, on ingest, clean up the data um, to make it useful. So there's a, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. That's why I mentioned up front that um, this conversation requires some thought around um, how, do we, how do we regulate, how do we govern this um, in order to have access to these key data sets uh, for the public benefit so we can start to understand the risks to the system and, and make decisions to bring down risk to that uh, so we're, we're more resilient in the end. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, so you were just doing some work with, um, uh, with the Rockefeller Foundation, is that correct? Hey, let's just take about uh, 60 seconds here and listen to our sponsors. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. You know, one of the things I... Uh... I like to do most is save money. And right now you have an opportunity to save a hundred dollars off the EMLC conference. Uh, if you get in there, the early bird special and it ends February 28th. So don't wait any longer. Click into emlc.us and get your early bird special of a hundred dollars off. If you're a student, don't forget it's $200 off for you. So sign up now. And I'll see you in May. 
Hey, welcome back from listening to the sponsors really quick. Without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here. So please reach out to them. Tell them that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. So you were just doing some work with um, uh, with the Rockefeller Foundation. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so the the uh, Rockefeller Brothers Fund uh, at the uh, the Rockefeller Estate up in White Plains, New York. Uh, 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 Rocky Mountain Institute is out of Colorado, and one of their one of their uh, um, uh, points of, of focus is how to leverage uh, new market winning grid technologies, microgrids, distributed energy resources, uh, renewables, solar, wind, etc., for the benefit of resilience through the lens of national security. So thinking about we have multiple Department of Defense military installations in the U.S. More of the fight is being conducted. Um, the, you know, the projection of power is being conducted here domestically, whereas we may have been doing that in overseas bases. And so the U.S. now has to be uh, more resilient um, from system shocks that, uh, where the DOD, for example, the Department of Defense, doesn't own the asset. The power company owns the asset. The water utility owns the asset. Uh, the natural gas provider owns the asset. So the DOD has just as much equal risk on supply chain as does um, any community because many of these DOD installations are many cities or many towns. <clears throat> and um, and so, you know, the, the question is, well, how can these uh, these new technologies help um, uh, ensure mission assurance uh, for for these critical installations and key national security assets. And we can leverage that same thinking and methodology and approach to non-military uh, applications. So, um, you know, an emergency operations center can benefit from uh, a microgrid. A hospital can benefit from a microgrid or combined heat and power. We've seen um, examples of this in, in the United States uh, where it's been very successful and around the world. So we have to be more deliberate and intentional uh, in understanding how to leverage these technologies. Because frankly, one of the key outcomes of the conversation was that um, over the last few days is that is this is really a technology agnostic problem. Um, it, it's, it's, it's cheap. The, econo the economics are there. There are companies that want to be very active in this space. In fact, Shell was one of the companies represented at the meeting, and they want to invest billions of dollars in these um, uh, distributed energy microgrid technologies um, because the market's changing in the energy space, and they want to get ahead of that. Um, and that's why you see BP and other, you know, who have been traditionally petroleum-based companies uh, get, in, get into this space because, because there's actually – uh, profits to be made there. There's a there's there's a market winning strategy there, and so so we as these technologies are available as they are, they exist. Um, while we're making improvements to the system today, uh, how do we leverage it? So, for example, the water systems, um, and particularly wastewater, are huge power demand. There are not any uh, backup ge generators, say in FEMA's inventory, the Army Corps of Engineers or at a local level, there's not a, there's not a generator that's going to meet the wastewater demand of New York City or, or LA or of San Francisco. <clears throat> and so we need these 
uh, large, large, more localized power assets, um, everything from battery storage to combined heat and power and these other technologies, so that these key critical assets that ultimately will make decisions on mortality, morbidity, the survivability and, re- and, and uh, viable recovery of, of a community following disaster, we can leverage these, uh, these, these uh, grid these grid technologies uh, for that benefit. So why is Shell interested? Well, Puerto Rico, uh, Hurricane Maria happened, and all of their, uh, 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 all of their gas stations uh, uh, were out were without power. And so you can't sell gas because you can't pump the gas out the ground when you don't have electricity. If you don't have point of sale, you don't have an ATM, you don't have ability mm-hmm. to swipe a credit card. Um, Shell was not able to sell their product. And so now they're investing. They're going to put backup generation capabilities at every single Shell gas station around the world. And, and that's really exciting. And, um, and it's good to see the private sector step up and, and take care of some of these resilience issues. But, but we need to do it as a partnership between uh, both public and private uh, entities. So California is leading the way with uh, solar technology, or not technology, but solar, implementing solar technology. Um, you know, this year will be, 2019, will be the first year where if you build a new home, you have to build, unless you're in shape, you have to have uh, solar um, integrated into your home. Um, is solar the, the key to a sustainable grid? Well, the challenge with solar is that the sun doesn't shine every, all the time. <laughs> um, I know it's oversimplifying it, but that's just the fact, right? So it's how do we combine these in, uh, um, to their various strengths and, and how do we integrate these as, as, a, as a dynamic portfolio, right? It's like the basic when you're, make, you're investing in a stock market, right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, similar in the power community, uh, there is a huge swing towards natural gas as its primary uh, fuel input. Um, we still have about a third, it's, uh, you know, a third coal, a third natural gas, and, and a third nuclear power as far as um, generation capacity um, and renewables in that mix, but at a much smaller percentage. We're talking about the bulk level. But, uh, but the solar alone doesn't have the, the capability um, uh, to uh, to power at all at all times, right? It's going to go. Uh, you know, the night nighttime happens. So so where do you store that energy? Um, so there's a there's been a, a challenge on on storage and, and how do you do that effectively? Um, and there are many ways to do it, um, but batteries, particularly acid based or lithium ion, just doesn't have the 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 capacity or the efficiency um, uh, to uh, to store uh, solar or wind or other variable. Uh, renewable energy technologies um, in a way that can be beneficial at a bulk level. <clears throat> so um, I appreciate what California is doing. I think it's it's the right um, approach. I, you know, we have to come to terms with with our climate goals and and to actually uh, um, help protect this planet that takes care of us. Uh, and so and so, you know, rather than focusing on these these myopic approaches like everything solar, everything wind, or everything natural gas, we have to take take an approach that that leverages all of the various technologies and capabilities 
so that it benefits the whole of the system um, in in an integrated way. So, so I think um, I think California uh, should maybe take a step back and understand um, and possibly relitigate some of these some of these actions and focus on what is the goal. Well, if the goal is um, no car- uh, no carbon future or carbon neutral future, well. Let's not focus on one specific technology to get there. Let's understand how we get to that goal, and, and it's a mixture of things. So I was thinking along the lines of with, with solar, especially in the uh, disaster situation, earthquake, that if you have it, you can still have some power. Um, and we were talking earlier a little bit about how with fire, you know, as well, uh, there are some issues associated with the power grid and, and fire. Is California doing the right thing with for disaster resiliency specifically? Um, you know, with their building codes, with building, and I know that there's some issue that we're talking about with building in the uh, urban, um, you know, wilderness interface areas. What can we do better to to prevent these large scale disasters that we've seen in California? Uh, regarding fire and and the grid. Well, I think I think the uh, the ultimate challenge here, and, and something you know that FEMA is uh, you know squarely pushing on, and and I agree with them, is is the culture issue. Um, you know, the cultural preparedness, as uh, Administrator Long says, and in the strategic plan, is that we we need a um, a citizenry, a, a, a public not just in the United States, but globally, who, who have higher risk literacy, um, that they understand um, how to approach uh, their life from a, from a risk decision. If you have a more informed um, risk-thinking uh, public, then, you know, in theory, um, in a, in a de- democratic society, that the public will help um, and ensure that uh, those who are who are leading and are making legislative and executive decisions um, that uh, that it really it really comes from 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 that perspective. So, uh, you know, I think we have an opportunity with uh, distributed networks and the Internet of Things and gamification, electrification of everything that we could have this <clears throat> this open environment in which we can bring together um, as many people uh, who want to be engaged. Uh, you know, there's an, there was an interesting story about the uh, Malaysia uh, aircraft um, uh, incident where, you know, the debris field is so wide and so large that just random people could go in and essentially go on the map. And if they saw a piece of debris, they flag it. And it helped with the it helped with um, with uh, accelerating the investigation on, on the crash. Right, so that's one way of using crowdsourcing. I mentioned earlier that that people are a sensor. So I think ultimately, um, you know, the way that this is going to change, not just in California but around the world, is to have is to have a global citizenry that um, have high high risk literacy. And so that means we need it in in the schools at at a very young age, where this becomes um, as fundamental um, as uh, you know taking uh, physics. In uh, in school, I think if we had uh, um, a, a hyper focus and attention on not just disasters, um, but but risk in general, um, and understanding how to navigate life uh, through that perspective, 
I, th- I think we'd be better off. So, um, but at a more uh, tangible, what can we do today? Um, you know, I think states like California who are very progressive and forward leaning are, are, are approaching this in the right way. But again, I, th- I, I, I think we need to avoid the silver bullet, you know, allure, like just shut the power off and prevent this because, you know, Pacific Gas and Electric have been, you know, on, on record of being many of the sources of the, uh, uh, of, uh, the ignition for, for some of these fires that have happened over the few, uh, past couple of years. Uh, but again, I, 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 I encourage folks to not get so hyper-focused on the silver bullet or the shiny object and taking a step back and look at the forest to the trees and understanding what the system, how the system interoperates and then reducing risk to that system so that uh, because we can't, we're in a resource constrained environment, we don't have infinite money um, or infinite physical resources. We have to make uh, a decision to reduce that risk where it's acceptable. Um, but we've all, we've all understand that it is a, an accepted risk. It's just like getting on the, on the road every day. Um, you know, you're more likely to, to die in, in a vehicle, uh, but people do it every day knowing, knowingly that, that it's, that it's a risk. So we, we understand this, I think, fundamentally in a behavior level. It's just that folks need the, the literacy to match, uh, their, their intuition on, on making risk decisions. So they can make smarter risk, more informed risk decisions. That's so true. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the things that uh, uh, I've tried to do with my kids uh, as far as, as far as that type of uh, decision-making and why you do things. And, and I think if everybody kind of takes that approach, we'll have a, a much, much, much more uh, disaster alert um, uh, society. So we're coming here close to the end. Um, and a couple more questions for you. So if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, how could they find you? So uh, many ways. You can uh, find me on, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Uh, it's my name, Sean Michael Griffin. And uh, you can also find us on our website, which is uh, disaster-ai.com. Uh, um, and you're certainly welcome to send me a note, email. That's uh, sean at disaster-ai.com. Um, again, you know, at our company, philosophy is hyper-collaboration and extreme collaboration and cooperative environment. And we want to work with anybody who's interested on uh, reducing risk to, to uh, global citizenry from disasters because it is a global problem. And, um, and, and we want to do this together with our neighbors. And so, um, so yes, please reach out and we would love to uh, hopefully find a way to collaborate together. All right, Sean, here comes the toughest question of the day. What book, books, or publication do you recommend to somebody in emergency management? Books or publications. So um, I would say that uh, uh, a, uh, a recent um, uh, a publication, it's really not a well, I guess it's a TEDx talk. Um, uh, the, the TEDx talk, and I can send you the link, Todd, and you can share it however is, uh, sure. is, is useful. Um, but uh, Trisha Wang, she's an ethnographer um, who we've been working with at Disaster Intelligence, and I've been very. Um, she's changed the way that I've uh, that I've thought um, in in my life, but also in the context of of um, going uh, through uh, disasters and managing uh, disasters uh, or preparing for them. And so, uh, so the, 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 ta- the title of her TED talk is called The Human Insights Missing from Big Data. 
And I think this is a really important uh, uh, discussion or, or important uh, 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 perspective in, in this discussion of big data and Internet of Things, the electrification of everything. And we're just drowning in this data. Facebook has all this information on every single person on the planet, assumingly. And what do we do with it? And that's just a lot. And, and the problem is I think we can create tremendous bias um, from looking at it purely from a, a macro level uh, quantitative, you know, massive, you know, number issue. But really what she talks about is uh, thick data that is small data sets from, from, uh, from people. Um, and as an ethnographer, she, she studies, um, in sociology and people. And so uh, uh, there's, there's some interesting, uh, I, I point you to anything that Trisha Wang does. I, I, I find her very insightful. Um, and certainly the human insights missing from big data is, is definitely one of them. Um, you know, when I think about in the policy context, you know, working on the National Security Council staff, when we got the principles around the table, you know, you're talking, uh, you know, 10 to uh, you know, 15 principles around a table, and they weren't looking at, you know, major charts and, and uh, uh, visualizations and all, all this, you know, high computational stuff. They were, they were making human decisions. Um, and I think that's really important uh, context. You know, ultimately, this is, this is a human problem. And so we don't want to just get so admired in, in, in this big data thing and, and the illusion of all, all these interesting technologies, I think we need to take a step back and, 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 and to ensure that, that people um, and, and, and smaller data sets that provide useful hum, human context um, to, to these problems uh, uh, should be an, an equal uh, part of the conversation. So big data paired with thick data and then, and then deriving insights from that. It's sort of just like if anybody you know, in high school, college, the, the mixed method, you know, qualitative and qu qualitative and quantitative uh, research mm -hmm. approaches. So, um, so I would, I would point you there. Um, you kind of stumped me on the book, uh, <laughs> the book thing. Um, um, but uh, in fact, uh, recently I was rereading uh, Amanda Ripley's um, uh, uh, book, uh, the, uh, 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 I'm blanking here uh, on the name of the uh, the book, but it's uh, uh, she's she's great. Um, Amanda Ripley, uh, uh, something uh, like the unthinkable. Um, the unthinkable. Yes, uh, the unthinkable. Correct. Is that right? Yep. Yes. Um, so I, I I really like that book because it it ties well into the. Uh, yes, the unthinkable. Who survives when disaster strikes? That's the name of it. Um, uh, you know, that's a that's a great great book because she uses stories to to articulate the challenge that we have in 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 in, in being ready for disasters, and and the stories provide the emotion and provide the empathy um, that is lacking in those in those big data, you know, tables and charts and Excel files. And so, how we how we ensure that we we have the human story element, and I think in the disaster world we, um, uh, you know, we we should probably have uh, more 
historians, ethnographers, anthropologists engaged in the, you know, in the real time response to these disasters in, in today's world, you know, everything is so widely documented with social media. We have all of this, all of this, uh, source material, um, and, and to be able to derive insights from, but the better we can be at storytelling and, and using that as a way to increase risk literacy and disaster literacy, I think that's going to be, um, I think that's going to be critical in, um, in making any fundamental changes in the world. Um, and so, yes, the art of the story, you know, we've existed for thousands of years uh, before written word and the story was the way we got by. And I don't think we should forget. It's so true. That's a, that's a really profound error, Sean. Uh, wow. I'm going to take, I'm going to chew on that for a little bit because that's, that was a really profound statement right there. Well, Sean, before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to say directly to the emergency manager out there? So I think to the emergency manager, um, number one, we need you. Don't get discouraged. <laughs> um, more disasters are going to happen, unfortunately, um, as the years come by. But, uh, but the emergency manager, I think, is, uh, um, is, is, it's, it's, it's a profession that, that um, I was lucky, I'll say, to uh, stumble into. It certainly wasn't the um, my my intention, um, you know, coming from nuclear power, certainly. Um, but it, it's it's such a great profession, and you know, like many public servants, particularly at the local level, you don't get paid that well. Um, so again, don't get discouraged. Don't leave the community. If anything, stay. <laughs> um, we, we, I think, um, uh, are at a point where with an aging populace and folks leaving the, the work environment, we, we want to be able to um, maintain that institutional knowledge. And so the things that we've built over time in the, in the community, like the incident command system, um, or, or now national incident management system, um, you know, th th these things were built off of off the history of emergency management, and I think that um, um, again, please, please don't quit, um, even though the deployments are hard <laughs> and uh, the hours seem to never end, and it seems like you're moving from hopping from one disaster to the next. Um, just stay in it and um, know that there are people out there that that uh, that care about you and believe in what you do and. I certainly do, and I'm, I'm honored to be part of that uh, that community. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, love to have you on again. Thanks, Todd.